dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series. You're listening to Podcast Winterfell. Welcome to Podcast Winterfell. My name is Mike. If you've ever listened to this show before, you are tired of hearing my voice. You've heard it so much. So we brought somebody else on today. Derek Barris. How are you doing, Derek? I'm rocking, man. How are you feeling? Uh, very good. Uh, I've watched this Game of Thrones episode uh, too many times to be proud of. I'm excited to talk to somebody besides my dog about it. Um so Derek is a writer and a yogi, and how do you describe yourself? I don't think you've ever described yourself using the word yogi in front of me before, so <laughs> yeah, I, I should let you describe your own self. I work in many different forms of movement. I move people's bodies in fitness classes and yoga classes. I move people's bodies on dance floors, DJing, and I try to move people's minds through writing. And that is my probably oldest profession as I was a journalist and editor for many years. Uh, currently, I write for a few places, but mainly BigThink.com, where they asked me this year to cover all seven episodes of Game of Thrones. And that came out of last year, I wrote an article on one of the episodes talking about the inherent embedded feminism in one of the episodes. And so they said, hey, it'd be great if you can not give us a recap, but take a theme every episode and explore it. And that's what I did this morning. Yes, and thank you for bringing that up just quickly, because if you write about Game of Thrones, don't recap the damn episode. Everybody watched it. If we're reading, you already watched it. I don't need a recap. So I like that about your article. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you find, have- I find one recap. I, I wish like either just the New York Times or Vox or like one recap is nice just to like. So when I'm writing, I look be like, oh, yeah, that I forgot about that. That was there. OK. And that, that's nice. But yeah, the 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 piling on of recaps for clicks is a little much. So you had an, uh, your first article. Uh, I want to talk about your previous article about feminism actually too but your first article of this season came out today uh on big think and it's it's been retweeted on the the winterfell podcast winterfell tweet twitter and all that kind of stuff uh derek Barra's big think dragonstone your favorite search engine you'll make it happen so uh tell us about the article and kind of what inspired it and also actually start off tell us a little bit about your history with uh mythology and why i should believe that you know any of this stuff (laughs) I went to Rutgers University in 1993, and I had no no religious training whatsoever. And uh, our mutual friend of ours, who I met my very first week of college, Thaxton, uh, introduced me to the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada, which are Hindu and Buddhist scriptures. And I was like, wow, this is kind of stuff that I might have been in my imagination, but here it is. This is actually a a culture and a history to it. So I fell in love with mythology. I ended up getting a degree in religion because I loved storytelling. I fell in love with Joseph Campbell, Mircea Eliade, uh, many of the thinkers who have covered these traditions uh, for so long. And it underlies everything that I do. I was reading yoga scriptures well before I actually got on a yoga mat and I loved the mythology and that led to the movement. Uh, So that's sort of you know, I have an academic history in religion and mythology, but I also just from a journalist perspective 
And from a fan perspective, I read about it all the time. And I try to understand the threads that exist uh, underneath popular culture and culture in general and why we need some of this wisdom and storytelling specifically, why we should pay attention to it. And that's sort of the angle that I took on this first episode. As I was going into it, I had no idea what I was going to cover. I was like, okay, I'll just hope, you know, something sparks my imagination during the episode. And as soon as they were in the Citadel and I saw all those books, I was like, oh, there it is. That's that's exactly it. Like, why, what is the underlying theme here? Well, you have the main part of this episode happening around books in a culture that doesn't read books anymore and is having a political moment of complete stupidity. And so, (laughs) and there's the correlation. Right. I mean, when you have a president who said, I love the uneducated and they cheer, I mean, it's just, you look at this and you're like, this isn't, you really can't see what's happening. And there was such a perfect correlation with the Archmeister in this episode to what's happening in America. See, this is this is why I wanted to talk to you about this. Like, just on a personal note, I was exceptionally um, cold and rational and, and uh, nihilistic and literally until I met Derek. Um, and, you know, you talking to you about Campbell and about mythology, like it was helpful for you to be able to suggest some of the easier books to start off with. Um, you know, and like listening to Alan Watts speak is a very, like, uh, was such a warm introduction, right. <laughs> to a lot of these ideas. And I got that from you, you know, but you also, uh, are really smart about the way you uh, can apply these things to our actual existing life, because I don't think many people read, Bhagavad Gita and in any way can relate it to their actual walking around existence, even though that's what it has been doing for 4,000 years, however long, right? 2,500 years, but yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, (laughs) It's okay. I listened to this like history of, you know, philosophy in India and they talked about all of the like pre-written stuff, you know, and, and this is like people have been applying these lessons for longer than, right? And, and you do that now, um, and so I'm really happy to see, I mean, do you think that that's going to be, we'll talk about this specific article, but do you think that that's going to be kind of a theme of your articles this season? Um, or do you think you're just kind of kind of grab on whatever takes you in each episode? I think what takes me, because specifically the way that my career has trans- transitioned is that I look at neuroscience and, you know, maybe one of the articles might have to do with the neuroscience of power and what it does to a brain, for example. Mm. Cersei would make a perfect example. Even even the fact that she's now decided to um you know potentially marry to keep her house in power is kind of a new twist for her in some ways. So the, you know, there's. I, I really can't say. I have to. I want to try to honor each episode for what it is, and so I'm trying not to have preconceived notions. Although, you know, I do. I do have to turn these around pretty quickly. I'm taking notes during the during the episode, and then I wake up at 6 a.m. because my editors are in New York time, so I wake up pretty early to write them the next morning. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's talk about this article. <clears throat> Uh, why mythology still matters wisdom from game of thrones dragonstone 
against my better judgment, I'm not going to just pull a local news and sit here and read your article uh, <laughs> to the people, but they can read it. Uh, Bigthink.com, uh, Game of Thrones episode one. So uh, tell me about this article and about why, you know, in particular, Sam stood out. I love Sam, man. Oh, thanks for writing about Sam. <laughs> it's funny. My wife, Callan, she hates Sam. She's always just like, why? I just wish he would die already. And I'm like, and she especially hates his wife. But I, I'm, you know, there's because they're so different. But I'm like, well, you know what? The court jester has played a role in mythologies throughout time. It's the fool that usually becomes the hero, which is exactly what's happening here. He's figuring out where Dragon Boss is. And so you have an example of, of the court jester being the most important link in this, which is, which is how it should be and how it always has been, but it's fascinating. Uh, and as a reader, I just appreciate him because no one else in the series reads, really. <laughs> so you have, but, but that was the thing. Here you have the one person who seems like he should have been offed long ago, and he's the one specifically sent on a mission to figure out the key to fend off the White Walkers. And where does he do it? Through shared knowledge that's been passed down through generations through books. And specifically in that conversation where he's weighing the liver and the heart, the Archmeister is saying two almost conflicting things, which I found fascinating. The first being that the people in the citadel are the keeper of memories, which historically is important because if you, you know, the whole thing, if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. So they're keeping that there. And yet at the end of their conversation, it turns around and he's like, the wall has stood for every winter. It's not going to fall. It can't fall, which I translated as it can't happen here. Which is right. exactly what's happening in America right now. Everyone, oh, it can't happen here. Can No, if, of course, it's not going to happen exactly like it happened before. But if you can't see the patterns that are happening and realize this is going to be just a new take on what's happened for thousands of years since societies began, then I don't, I don't know what you're going to ever learn from history. <clears throat> so... <laughs> You sound um, a, a little bit despairing uh, of our of our chances of getting out of this alive, Derek Bears. I thought we were talking about a TV show, but that's the thing with you. We're never just talking about a TV show. <laughs> I, I, I wrote about Vox at the end, the Vox climate change thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll actually extend that point because a friend of mine wrote last night about his favorite scenes from it, and then I added in... I added in, uh, oh, I added in uh, Sansa's uh, dig on Littlefinger about uh, you don't always have to have the last word. It'll just be clever anyway, something to that effect, which I loved. And then somebody else commented following mine, not against, not on me, but just the general point. She's like, I can't stand how pop culture references with the top knot and Ed Shaheen being in there, I, you know, it ruins it for me. And I'm like, Game of Thrones is the most pop culture thing that exists in the world. <laughs> like HBO crashed yesterday because of this. It is the mo- so this little like it, it reminds me back in high school when the indie band became famous. People are like, no, they can't be. I, they're mine. 
And it's this idea that, no, Game of Thrones can't talk about a top knot. I'm like, what, you mean relating to people? Like, if, if there wasn't some relating the enti- all seven seasons, then people wouldn't give a shit. There's always this underlying thematic. If you're not relating to what's going on in people's lives, you're not making an impact. And so this show has always done that in different ways. And if you can't pull out of it, you know, that's what I was seeing in response to the Vox piece and when they were talking about climate change as an underlying theme of Game of Thrones. Some people were like, oh, that's a really good point. Some people are like... I think so. I don't think it's a major theme, but I understand what you're coming from. And then some people are like, don't ruin it for me. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding? So what's on the screen is more important than what's going on in the polls right now? Like, are you kidding? You can't both have entertainment and enjoyment and yet learn and be educated at the simultaneously. That's insane. Well, I also think there's kind of a, like, you know, I don't have to, to, engage with everybody's way of dealing with the show you know like i don't there are certain some people i like the way they interact with it other people i don't need to you know so it's one of those things where i feel like kind of that's a situation where everybody feels like they need to comment on every goddamn thing um you know there was an article that came out this week about um that talked about that was basically talking about the dragons as a a metaphor for white privilege Right. And um, this like unassailable, mysterious force, you know, that wins every time. Right. Um, And it was a great article and there's all kinds of smart things in it. And it's also somewhat tongue in cheek. You know, um, it's definitely not like a rant, you know, Uh, and the larger point was kind of about why black people should watch game of thrones or what you know kind of what they can get out of it specifically it's a black writer all this kind of stuff and a bunch of people lost their fucking minds you know and it's on the route right which is like a black focused site and it's one of those things where it's like if you don't want to but there was a lot of that like don't ruin the dragons for me <laughs> <You know? laughs> can't anything just be fantasy but i think this is one of the things that the only reason that i can enjoy this show is because you made a point to me a long time ago that there is no such thing as just fantasy you know i never liked any of the star things star wars star, i never got any, any of that stuff because to me it just is okay but it didn't make any sense i wasn't able to draw anything relatable or personal out of it and of course i understand now as an adult that all you know gene roddenberry was talking about society all the time you know and then they put in some lasers to make everybody like wake up before the commercials but you know, basically, like, it really was about something. Um, it just, it doesn't, I don't have to care what everybody thinks it's about, you know. Uh, but I like that that, you know, that this is something that you're kind of going back to, right, is drawing out these examples. Um, and whether not, and, well, and it's another level of enjoying it, too, because for me, when I'm watching the show, I'm not thinking about any of that, man. I'm just like, oh, my God, they killed everybody. I'm just like... <laughs> You know, none of that is coming to it, right? But then, like anything else, it's nice to read and think more about it later. If something is is genuinely worth your time, you ought to be able to think about it, you know, after it's done, right? Hopefully. And as a writer and somebody who also writes fiction as well as nonfiction – those writers know what they're doing. <laughs> they're putting it in there. 
Like there's some there's some core like the you know there our brains are always I mean that's how we learn we with concepts so this is like this is at the root of everything that we know of how we understand I mean that's concepts and it leads to problematic issues like racism and gender bias and things like that because we say this is like this and then that sticks but it's if we didn't do that. We wouldn't learn anything. We'd always have to relearn everything all the time. So those comparisons are, it's how we're, it's how we're wired. And so you can find anything in anything really, but some of it's going to be a stretch, which is like what you're sounding with the white privilege and dragon thing. And, and maybe the correlation is there. And if it wasn't overly serious, then there could be some good points drawn out of it. I mean, we, we also, that's something I learned early on as a music critic is that artists need critics to show them things they didn't even see in their art. So that's really important. But things like that, the Archmeister and Sam and that, I mean, that was very specific. Like the writers weren't like, oh, this just fits in the story. There's a much bigger theme going on there that they're purposefully putting in and so to say that that doesn't exist it's just it's just it's a it's a lack of integrity a lack of intellectual integrity that always is troublesome oh wow lack of integrity that is troublesome talk let's talk a little bit about the philosopher oh no 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 i wanted to ask you one other question about sam before we leave that um he kind of, you know, it's interesting you relate him to the fool, which I think makes a lot of sense for his character in the first couple seasons. Um, somewhat less so now, but not really. I mean, I guess emptying shit pots is even below being the fool a little bit. But uh, he kind of has like one protector, right? Or like just and, – and, and when – one of the things I really liked about the performance actually in, in, uh, in that scene is the way he delivered the, like, you believe me, you know, so you believe me, right? Like nobody's believed him, which is a way of saying believed in him, mm -hmm. right? Like it all starts with his father not believing in him, you know, and his mother's approval wasn't obviously wasn't enough to keep him even in the house, you know, so it, it, he kind of, that finding that one person to believe in him and that one person to then appeal to, right? Because once he figures out about the dragon glass, you know, the stash of dragon glass, he says, John's got to know about this, right? And before the scene is done, he's writing the letter, you know? Uh, so is there like, is there some sort of a mythological kind of, um, comparison there or or some sort of something that that we can relate that to some other story we can relate that to where the fool has an interested protector well the first that comes to mind is in indian mythology ganesh because ganesh is the fool uh there's a story where he is oh he's always late <laughs> and he's run, like there's this huge banquet with all of the the uh the gods and goddesses there eating and they they feast and then they're done eating and then Ganesh walks in and they're like oh there you are again you you missed everything the food's all gone and he goes and he picks up the tablecloth and looks underneath and he sees a crumb and next to the crumb is a rat 
and now traditionally rats and elephants are supposed to be enemies that elephants are it's not actually true but you know rats can scare elephants but in general they're not actually enemies but he picks it up and he finds a crumb and he goes and next to the rat and the rat's eating the crumbs and he goes what are you talking about you left me the best part and he becomes best friends with the rat from there on. So if you see symbology of Ganesh, you'll usually see a little rat next to him and that's his best friend. And the point being is just like, you think that you had the feast, but I got the friendship and that's more, that's more important. And he played that role. I mean, um, you have, uh, you know, Don Quixote, uh, you know, his, he was, he was also his, um, his partner whose name's eluding me right now. Uh, I have to look this up, but he, um, he, all of his adventures, he was, he was guided by a fool as well. I mean, it's a very old tradition in that sense. Like very often the fool is the one because people do count them out. And I think that's an underlying theme that they're not supposed to be. I mean, look at the, look at the physical difference between Jon Snow and Samwell. Right. Well, he did. Go ahead. Well, that's the thing about that's just owing to John's leadership abilities. It, it came out when, you know, last night when Sansa was like, oh, these are traitors. And she's not looking at the big picture. She's looking at her, you know, vindictiveness, vindictiveness, which obviously coming out of what she just came through makes sense. She's not going to be very trusting, but he sees the bigger picture. He's like, you don't, you don't know what the White Walkers are. We need as many people as we can get. And so if they're willing to come back in, we need them. And they do. And so it's, Samuel is just another example. It's him seeing the big picture when everyone else just wants to get rid of him. Right. <clears throat> well, uh, I mean, I like Callan and everything, but I love Sam and Gilly, man. I love Gilly. I don't care. She has been through... The worst of the worst, like you are Craster's kid, you know, and had to give away her baby and like, but she still like comes out on the other side somehow being a positive, you know, some, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like the world needs more Gilly. Our our modern American needs more Gilly in it. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I'm a fan too. I mean, I've, they've never, I've, I've loved, I love that whole theme below below the storyline i mean again as you're seeing it's it's a necessary part of it right right i like the I, you know i like that idea of relating to sam as a reader i think that's a really excellent point i never thought about him like that that's just another good reason i like him hey if you listen to podcast winterfell you have probably heard axel talking about our new patreon setup and you should go and look at it and contribute a dollar or two to the till I'm going to be honest with you, straight up, real. Axel Foley has been making podcasts for people for 10 years. And all I've done is get on the phone and blabbermouth about my opinions or something that I saw that I liked or whatever. But to be honest, like Inside Baseball, Axel's the one who does all the work. He's the one who records these things. He's the one who edits them. He's the one who takes out all the things that make me sound stupid. So I sound smart instead, as smart as I'm possibly going to sound. So if you want to support us a little bit, you know, kick it in because it's going to Axel Foley. And I'm telling you what, man, he really deserves it. Like I never would have podcasted in my life if it wasn't for that guy and I wouldn't be doing it now so check us out on patreon uh dvr network i believe it's called but you know 
how to find all the links if you're actually interested. Every dollar helps. Thanks a lot. Let's talk. I want to talk a little bit about the philosopher hound, uh, which is how I'm going to refer to him from now on. Um, you know, he. I'm really enjoying his kind of out loud working out of all of this, you know, and, and I think maybe one of the reasons I like it so much is I feel like I relate to it in a way that it's very hard to, you know, I obviously haven't done the things he's done or experienced the things he's experienced, right? But when you're going through periods of kind of existential frustration, when it feels like there is no real opportunity for good, right? Either for yourself or anyone else. This is a, a feeling that I can relate to, you know? And it makes you grumpy, <laughs> right? Uh, and it is especially hard to not be grumpy around people who have some sort of a mystical or spiritual answer that they insist upon in your presence, right? And so I've been really been enjoying seeing him kind of go through that whole process. So I want to talk a little bit about like what the out is, you know, like what in, in kind of mythology or philosophy, because in philosophy, you know, there's a, there's a through line that includes that perspective, you know, and various kind of philosophical responses to it. But it's much older than that, right? That period of doubt, you know, that, um, that kind of and, and we even saw him last season trying to turn it into positive energy in a way, right? When you see him cutting wood and, and he joins and he's trying to help build the set, you know, and then they all, you know, then all those people end up dead and he goes and finds their killers and exacts revenge, which is the only philosophy of life that he feels like he can count on in any way is revenge. Right. And all you can do is hope it doesn't come for you. Uh, and so it's interesting to me to see him try and then fall off the wagon, you know, and now he's presumably going to try again. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of the history of that in mythology and what the out is, what the traditional out is, how you see maybe this kind of developing for him. There's a number of ways. I don't think there's any singular traditional out. Uh, there has to be growth. You know, that's what uh, Campbell's four stages of mythology has shown in that what he did was he mapped all of the stories from different cultures and just looked for through lines. And it was that he called it the four stages of mythology and that every story, not every story, but a lot of the stories follow, which is that there has to be an initiation period. There has to be something that sets you off on the journey. And usually it's a tragedy. It doesn't have to be, but often it's a tragedy. Then there's the journey itself. And then once the journey is complete, there's the return. And so you go back to whence you came. But the fourth part is integration. And if integration doesn't happen, then the journey was useless. It's not a mythology. It doesn't, there has to be a transformation. So that integration is taking the knowledge that was learned during the journey. And when you get back home, applying it. So for example, Gilgamesh, which is one of the oldest recorded mythologies from the Sumerian tradition, he was, no one could defeat him in battle. He was just, he was a king, but he was egotistical as hell. He would, the night before anyone in his 
community got married, he would sleep with the wife just so the future husband had to deal with that. And Mm. when he came back home, having lost the plan of immortality and having lost his best friend, he was humbled and he became a better ruler because of it. And I think you're starting to get a sense of that with the fire and the vision in the fire Mm. and that leading to the burial to be like, I'm going to honor this even though I created it. And it could just be a more humble person or it could be full blown out fire fundamentalist where he becomes, <laughs> he becomes a visionary and he fully, the fire, you know, there's that point where he says, you're God. Well, maybe now it's his God too. And maybe he goes that route and you can't tell. I mean, religious conversion is powerful. It can, you know, if people, I mean, that's what it does. People, something happens and then they always relate that specific instance with their newfound sense of freedom and he could could become a devotee. I could see that happening or maybe he becomes a team player, Mm. which is really what, what's if he's going to journey with them, that has to happen. I mean, this whole, you know, there were parts of me that were waiting when they first got to the house. It was just like, is he just going to while out and kill them or try, even though he realizes, (laughs) even though he realizes he's killed him before and that didn't work. So maybe there's that, but you don't know. And then there's that moment where he's looking in the fire and he has the vision and you're like, okay, there, there was a transformation there. All of a sudden he realizes that what they're saying about visions, he had one now. So he's had the actual experience. That's an interesting question. Do you, cause as you say that I'm trying to think of another time when he learned something as opposed to stating something that he basically learned the first time he got his face shoved in a fire which is, you know, this kind of sense of revenge and, and senseless cruelty that uh, George Martin is incredibly talented at, at invoking, right? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I have one. I, when he said, you're still alive and that little girl yes. is no longer here, I, in my head, I thought yes. about his journey with Arya. And yes. so... I was like, yeah, there's a moment of learning. Now that he's had that experience with her, he's looking at the daughter. Yes. And that 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 was a crystallation of the change that had been happening in him since his fight with Brienne, since Arya left him there. And then the next time we see him, right, is is at the set, is that, you know, with the people who are building the set, right? So that that girl the dead, you know, they had, they crystallized that thought that had been developing since that moment. Yes. There's a thing he learned before the fire. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Right on. Well, I, that's interesting. I, I'm, I don't know that I want to see, I like a cynical philosopher. I just tend to generally prefer cynical philosophers <laughs> <right>? <laughs> over fundamentalist ones. So I don't know if I'm going to want to rock with him if he's going to end up uh, going that direction. But yeah, well, it'll be interesting. Do you uh, foresee any psychological consequences for Arya? Like, what is her story? You know, because she seems to be. Is there a mythological component of, to her story? I personally have enjoyed it very much. And I really, I enjoyed all the faceless men stuff. And if she just murders people as a professional assassin without dealing with any consequences from now until the end of time, I will be totally fine with that. Uh, (laughs) 
but I'm also open to the possibility that like everything else that's good, it's going to get more complex. A lot of people have like there was this whole running theory when she was dealing with the faceless men that at some point she was going to be assigned to kill Sansa or, you know, somebody somebody who would remind her of her name you know, and of who she was, right? But obviously that's not going to happen because she bailed on them and she knows who she is. Um, you know, I had always liked that idea as a, a kind of form of complexity, you know, the idea that a person kind of wakes up from a long-held belief in a moment, you know, enlightenment in a moment as opposed to a lifetime of effort, right? Um, obviously that's off the table now. So if she's just kind of going on a spree... I liked, you know, I thought it was interesting at the campfire. She seemed to, you know, because obviously she knows they're all Lannisters. And you would assume that if she, you know, presumably not every single person who was in that room at, you know, uh, of the phrase was was also at the Red Wedding. Presumably there was some collateral damage, (laughs) right? (laughs) And she doesn't care about that at all so you would also assume based on the the first scene that she would be fine with killing all of these lannister soldiers if she could figure out a way on her way to kill the queen and not have any kind of issues with it right but then you see her sitting there listening and it it seemed to me that she was relating in a way to the kid who was talking about his father on the boat you know like that's not jamie lannister right like that's and they they all were kind of you know do you think soldiers get a raven you know, when she asked him, is it a boy or a girl? I don't know. Well, that's the kind of thing that, that a highborn kid would ask, right? Because if her father, you know, if Ned wasn't there and Catelyn had a kid, he would get a raven that told him what it was. You know, um, so I like that we're already starting to see her not necessarily have regret, but at least not just be willing to literally mow down everyone who isn't a young girl uh, between her and Cersei. Um so well, do you yeah she has her list so i never imagined her as just killing for the sake of it i didn't think she was going to go that route uh i thought that scene was fantastic i mean there was so every line was just like it could go this way or this way okay you but know? either they were editing for time or not everybody in that room was on her list oh no i mean i mean the campfire i mean the campfire oh right um, okay yeah and i mean she just Obviously, she just wanted revenge for what had happened in that room. And that was, I mean, that opening scene was fantastic. So good. Uh, But that, you know, because as soon as she approaches, it's like, are they going to attack her? Are they going to rape her? You know, they seem friendly. They're singing folk songs. Like, there was a whole play there that happened. You know, and in my head... There was that moment where she's like, "I'm gonna, I'm out to kill Cersei," and then, and then they laugh because look at it; it's absurd on the face of it. And so that broke the tension, and that's where they ended, which was smart. But then it's just like, or is she going to kill Daenerys after Jon Snow marries her? There's so many different, like, <laughs> you know. And what I think will be really revealing for her is what happens when she actually meets up with her family again. Like, how does that happen? I mean, the you know when Sansa and Jon Snow met up again i mean they're colliding but pretty immediately they're like we're working together is that going to be it the was same sort of anticlimactic a little and, bit and, yeah in the way that they like just kind of fell right back into rhythm with each other and in fact it's a rhythm that they acknowledged that they didn't have mm-hmm. when they were together last time right the two of them 
Yeah, so where you does, know. I mean, Arya's experience has been completely different from their experiences. <laughs> so how, and she's so much older now compared, I mean, they're older too, but not in the same way. Right. So I really, I don't have, I, I, I'm not usually good at guessing and I try not, actually, it's partly why I don't read much of the, the guesses and the fan stuff on Game of Thrones. I really like to just go in there and kind of even I don't watch many movie previews. I like to go in and have not like I didn't watch Logan before I went to see it. And I just didn't want to know. Um, right. You know, I did happen to watch Black Panther preview and now I'm just can't wait. But it's <laughs> you know, I, I just don't I don't know speculation. I mean, I, I understand the speculation, but I also just kind of like to be surprised. So as a fan, uh, do you need for Arya to have any sort of comeuppance, whether it's physical or psychological, or are you just fine with uh, the killing spree? No, I'm I'm good with her just taking everyone out. <laughs> like I really because her character. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. She just what she's been through and she's learned. I don't. Yeah, I don't have any need for her to to go down. Right on. <clears throat> so. Uh... I mean, I'm, what what else are you hoping to see this season? I mean, we talked about the Sam thing as something that like stood out enough for you to write an article about. Uh, but what else did you enjoy about this particular episode, and what are you hoping to see this year? Not predictions. Hopes and predictions are different, right? Like Tim Hines, DJ Tim Hines, when we Axel was like, what would you want to see? He was like, I just want everybody to die. I just want <laughs> so much dying. And he refers to it as pruning. Right. And like he was really happy with the pruning they did at the the sept, you know, because they just knocked out so many sidelines and so many different stories all in one shot, you know, and that thrilled him to no end. Um, so what you're looking forward to can be base or it can be as complex as you like. Yeah, no, I'm pretty, you know, again, sticking. First of all, our brains aren't wired for a lack of resolution, like we will create the story and that's what you're seeing happening online. We will create the story whether or not we ever find out what it actually is. That's how our brains, we have to have resolution. And I am, I guess, more conservative and traditional in that sense. You know, you want to see Jon Snow and Daenerys get together <laughs> and form an alliance or something. I, I think that's a little far-fetched, but there's that. There's you want that, to that see is, him marry his aunt? Yeah, why not? Are you t- that's that's an outlier here. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> you know, you want to see the dry. I mean, I want to see Cersei die. I mean, you just like, all right, just it's going to be slow and painful. It has to be, you know. Uh, so I'm pretty, but but that's I just that's how mythologies work, and I don't mind surprises. Uh, I'm looking forward to them. I mean. Um, I want to see who's going to – I forget his name right now. Cersei's guardian. Uh, the, the, the mountain. The mountain. Thank you. I want to see how he's going to die. Like I want to see – I want it good. He needs to get it, you know? Because when he uh, when he killed that moment where he I, – again, I'm, I, I don't – when characters are gone for a couple seasons, I forget. I'm not that good at remembering the names. But when he killed the, the very suave – Oberyn. Oberyn. When he, when he killed Oberyn, I, that was one of those where I was just like, there's a few scenes through the, you know, there was a scene once where a spear went through a guy's throat and they just stayed <laughs> on it for like 20 seconds while the blood gurgled and he died. And then that same scene of the, the mountains 
hand going through his face that uh, those will never leave my head. <laughs> and so you're like, all right, that, that were that some come up, it's needs to happen there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, there, so, you know, but the whole click, but it Go ties ahead. in. I just gotta say it ties in. I want the entire Trump family in jail. <laughs> like I want him, like, it's the same thing. It's just like I do root for good. I don't I'm not I don't have a blind devotion to I don't believe that there's any ultimate good or evil happening. But when you take advantage of people to the degree that these people are, you want to see them suffer. You want to you want you want to see them have a moment of understanding that what they did to other people, they now have to experience. Right. And it doesn't always happen. Many people die having lived great lives that made a lot of people suffer and they didn't. But when it's right in front of you, you want to see it happen. Yeah. And so I think my, my take on Game of Thrones is the same as, as what's happening in this country. There's just such a profound level of ignorance and tribalism and stupidity happening right now that you want to just see people like, are you kidding? You, you, this is where we're heading. Wake up. And you want to see the people suffer who are creating this. <laughs> There's a, so Heath Solo has a theory that, that uh, I keep referencing other people. I don't know if you actually listen to our podcast, but I keep referencing other people who are on it. Um, but Heath Solo has a theory that Jamie's going to push Cersei out a window. Um, and that's the way she's going to die. <laughs> right. And I'm actually a huge fan of that theory. Uh, and there's another, you know, theory around called the Clegane bowl, right? That the hound and the mountain are brothers, you know, and that they are eventually going to fight and they call that the Clegane bowl. Wow. Okay. Uh, and I have always loved the idea of the, the hound killing the mountain, but at this point it seems like he's going North and the mountain's not. You know, so that seems like it's less and less likely to happen, kind of as it goes. You don't so, think so? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I know John said that they won't come north, but I don't know. I don't know. But, how I feel. Feel like they might. I feel like they might. I don't know. You know, but that idea. Um, I kind of like the idea of the of Jamie killing the mountain the same way he killed the Mad King. You know, with a sword in the back, right? Um, and so now I have combined this, my idea of him repeating the Kingslayer move only on not a king and Heath's idea of him pushing Cersei out the window into this just kind of like mad, you know, like because Jamie has been such a, a calming force right now for a few seasons now, mm -hmm. basically since he lost his hand. You know, he's really been a calming force. And you can see that it was especially on display when he goes to River Run uh, last season. And he just talks to Edmure. You know, the every, the phrase are going to kill him and the black, oh, blah, 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 right? And then he just walks in and he sits Edmure down and he's just like talks to him and says, you know, basically kind of like, this is the reality of your situation. I don't know why I'm having to explain it to you, you know? And then he goes, so it just like he's had this calming force. And I feel like he has a a real crazy day that he's been suppressing, you know? So, and I don't know, you know, of all the different ways Cersei could die, I just, I like the idea that he finally, she finally even is too much for him, I think is what I like about it. <laughs> you know, that moment when you've lost your last supporter, you know? 
such a such a comeuppance. It would be, but then does he survive? Would they kill each he, other? I mean, I think he ends up like a her. I think that Brienne has to lose a hand, and so she can't like really be of service anymore. And they end up as like she's going to lose the opposite hand of Jamie. And they're going to end up like hermits, basically, like kind of one hand hermits. And sometimes they stand next to each other and do things together because that way they have the opposite hands. So that's that's what I think his ultimate outcome is. I think he's going to live, but very humbly. Mm. So you don't think Brienne's going to sleep with that uh, redheaded wildling? Man, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. But then, you know, once she sees Jamie again, it's all over, dude. you know. <laughs> Her first love will, I, will be her. Yeah, I don't see the wildling as a marriage type guy. That's okay. <laughs> uh, okay, one other question. Nobody else seems to have noticed this, but I, when when Daenerys landed on the beach and she reaches down and she touches the sand, right? And yes. there's a bunch. There's a bunch of shots of her like on the boat and walking up and all these things where she's very wide eyed, right? Like that's how I would describe her until. The very last moment when she becomes shrewd again, you know, and she kind of her eyes close a bit. But she's very wide eyed from the boat into the harbor all the way up to the castle. And there's this moment where she reaches down and touches the sand and she looks at her hand. And when we come back to the shot of her, I swear to God, and my own wife disagrees with me, so maybe I'm nuts. But I swear to God, she had a blue ring that had to be digital. Right. That is the same color as the White Walker's eyes, not nearly as intense, obviously, but the same color. And it was ringing the iris and and bleeding into the white. And I've taken a bunch of pictures of this with my phone and like zoomed in. And I'm absolutely convinced that I'm correct. Did you notice this at all? Callan Callan pointed that out when she got out and she bent down and before her hand touched the sand, Callan said, sand turns into glass. That's how they're going to make the glass. Right. Yeah. No. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> You're and, not alone in that. And you see that the gl- that the sand is is black. You know, I mean it's it's multicolor, but there's a lot of black in it, right? Yeah, so I didn't the- see the ring that you're talking about, but but the whole idea of of that. All right. Noticed. Well, I'm going to find somebody else who saw this or else I'm just going to go on a full Alex Jones photo <laughs> conspiracy theory rant about the 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 idea of I mean, what is it like? Because it's never been explained, you know, what makes the the White Walkers <clears throat> the color that they are, right? Like the eyes and all that kind of stuff. So to me, I read it as just a sense of like, essentially, that's the color of magic, you know, and there's this idea of the magic increasing. Um, and that's why the White Walkers are back after a thousand years. And that's why the dragons are back. And these things are starting to happen again. It's because like people are being... Re, you know, kept alive and all these things is because the magic is increasing. Hmm. And so I'm wondering if that, you know, and we've already seen it. There's so much focus on the eyes of the White Walkers and, and that color and, and all that kind of thing. I'm wondering if that's going to start to be a way that we see the magic in people, you know, because I think the idea that she can ride these dragons around suggests that she's got some magic in her, <laughs> you know, especially if it's the same thing that is animating the white walkers and the dragons, right? Like if it's the same foundational source of Jesus juice, then presumably it would be active in her too. So, 
Well, yeah. I mean, that, and that just makes sense in terms of being a human. We all, we all have the same source material, but where the emphasis lies, you know, is a combination of genetics and experience. But, you know, there is, I mean, these are obviously very, there's a lot of Christian undertones to everything that's produced in the West. But in in Buddhism, there's no good and evil. There's no ultimate. We're all working with the same stuff. And and what is and I think this comes across too in Game of Thrones. You know, at first you think something is bad, but it turns out it was for a good reason. So mm. it's it's always complex. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're made if that magic is the same source material. See, all right, you're willing to indulge me a little bit. That's all I need for now. We're in episode <laughs> one. <laughs> Derek Bears, it's great to talk to you. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Or would you like to just tell everybody how to go and read your voluminous uh, efforts? Because you have a lot of shit, dude. you got a lot of books. You got a lot of articles. You got a lot of playlists. Like, if people don't know about Derek Barras, like, getting, finding out about Derek Barras, it's a deep well, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot there. Uh, com. Everything is, everything shoots off from there. Everything that I do in music, movement, and writing. And, uh, and I will just say that my book, Whole Motion Training Your Brain and Body for Optimal Health, does come out tomorrow. So that's a good sign. So you could start there. Let me just say also quickly, like as a person, I tend to avoid all forms of, you know, self yoga books. I don't those the way people write those things are very hard for me to read. And I read yours because you're a skeptical person by nature. And when you find things that have evidence, either in you know, scientific support or in your own experience, or sometimes you link mythology, but often all of these things come together for you before you, you know, when you're talking about yoga, you're talking about music, these things, like you're talking about neuroscience, mythology, your own personal experience, current scientific study, like you really are taking in all of these different forms and, and synthesizing them into one experience that is happening now and that relates to people's everyday life. And it's like, you know, there's only a handful of Buddhist writers that I can really read because so many of them are just using language and talking about things that I just can't, it's just too much for me, right? There's no skepticism there. But I think you start things from a skeptical place um, and the book is great, you know, and the new book that you're working on now is about skepticism in a lot of ways. And I'm very excited about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, even if it seems like maybe it's not your kind of thing, like go give it a look, start with these big think articles about Game of Thrones and, and follow it out because, you know, Derek has a really remarkable kind of consistency, um, and and tone and so on and so forth and once you kind of plug into that it's just it's great and he produces an enormous amount of work so you're constantly being satisfied your your Derek Beres bug is constantly being scratched <laughs> so d e r e k b e r e s derekberes.com and you know same on all the various whatever social things yes uh, sir. Derek it's great to talk to you man thank you for coming on and i reserve the right to do this again if um you know, you write another article that I just have to yell about. Hey, I'm free on Mondays most most of the day until 4 p.m., so I'm down. That's the spirit. Thank you for uh, tuning in and keep in touch. We're going to have a ton more podcasts this week and, and uh, every week for the next seven at least. Podcast Winterfell, we're out. 
Thank you for listening to Podcast Winterfell. You can find the podcast at dvrpodcast.com. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash dvr. You can email the podcast, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at WinterfellPod and on Facebook, Podcast Winterfell. Hey, Podcast Winterfell. It's Matt. I just thought I'd call in with a quick reaction to the first episode of Season 7, Dragonstone uh, of Game of Thrones. I was amazed. I was floored. I thought it was fabulous. You know, I don't care about being right about things, about being wrong about things anymore. I just want to enjoy this show. And I really, really enjoyed this show this time around, especially The Hound. The Hound was amazing. There was a couple of BR shout-outs about him uh, with the grave-digging thing. There was also just this incredible irony that here is a man who totally fears flames, and now he sees something in the flames. I think he is now sold on the whole Beric Dondarian cause, and I think that he's going to be with them for a while. I love that. Um, I love this changing sense of, you know, the, the whole guilt with the, with the family that he had robbed and, and that he was burying them. This And, and the fact that Javadi chose to play that honor theme uh, while he was doing that, I mean, it just spoke volumes about the evolution of his character quite economically. And um, I, I'm glad that Game of Thrones is still taking pauses with character moments like with Arya and the Lannister men. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, the Arya and the Hound storylines were my absolute favorites, but I also loved everything in between. Um, I, I loved the whole kind of Mordor thing going on with the White Walkers. It's just like, you know, uh, it reminds me of the clouds coming over uh, Sauron's forces as they were approaching Minas Tirith. Uh, there, there was just a lot of beauty in this episode. And I was very emotional about the Daenerys stuff. I know many people that I've seen on Twitter weren't so hot about it, but I thought it was very poignant. I loved how everybody stayed out of her way, hit on, hit on, hit on, on her own. And then you just have this cold, cold bit with her just saying, What's, what shall we do? You know, love that, love that. And it, it was a great um book into to the cold opening start with Arya being Walder Frey and uh just eliminating House Frey. That was amazing too. So so much good stuff in this episode. So little time to talk about it, but thanks for listening. Take care.